Author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. And welcome to I Protest. This is Donald Jeffries here with you. Sorry we're a few minutes late. As you regular listeners of the show that know that we're fashionably late quite often with connection issues and whatever. Uh, special guest today, somebody I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. So glad I got her with help from uh, my friend Richard Gage. Barbara Honiger is, uh, you, most people probably uh, know her originally as the author of October Surprise. She worked in the Reagan administration. She's now the chairman of the board of directors and investigative researcher with the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. She's, uh, she's got too long of a resume for me to even cite. She's uh, done great work on so many issues, and uh, we're going to talk as much as we can about her fascinating career here today. Barbara, thanks so much for being on the show. Hi, Don. This is great. Thank you. Well, well, it's great we finally got it, and I'm sorry we had the connection issue. So uh, so let's start. I mean, I, I know we want to talk what you're doing now, but I think, you know, people can, so they can know how you got started down this road. So you ended up in the uh, the rabbit holes where people like me are, you know, <laughs> um, when you when you, so you started out as a member of the race. I'm, I'm the white rabbit. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, you, well, you were originally, uh, um, I guess, a uh, you know, a member in good standing of something if you were in the Reagan administration. And uh, so talk about what happened, you know, like so many people who are in the inside, you saw something, uh, you decided to write a book, October Surprise. And did, did you coin the term October Surprise? No, no. Um, first off, the, the term October Surprise is actually a sports term. Um, mm -hmm. It just basically means a Hail Mary moment in a game. Mm -hmm. um, where where you're really behind and you need some miracle to pull off a victory or a win. Um, so no. But during the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign, and I was at the very top of that, I was the chief aide to the chief domestic policy advisor to Reagan, both in the campaign, the transition, and in the White House, the West Wing of the White House when he won. Um, so so uh, when Carter... Uh, was trying to get our 52, actually there were more than that, but we won't go into those details. Uh, most people think there were only 52 hostages, Americans who were held by the Khomeini regime in Iran. And um, so they were, Carter was uh, president of the United States. He legitimately was trying, of course, he had the authority to try to get them home. And the Reagan-Bush campaign uh, put out the word that Carter was trying to pull an October surprise. Well, of course he was. That was that was the uh, end of October 1980. He was trying to get our hostages home. Why shouldn't he, right? Everybody right. wanted that. Sure. Especially the family members of the hostages. So, so they coined that term. And it was, uh, I learned from the inside of the campaign one night um, in about October 28th of, of 1980, and of course, the election was on November 4th of 1980. Um, I learned in the most secure room of the campaign headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, um, that uh, we didn't have to worry about an October surprise by Carter anymore because our campaign had cut a deal with Khomeini. And wow. so I knew from the inside and, uh, you know, I went into the administration. Um, I was not, I was not 
a political animal, believe it or not. I was there because I had worked for six years for Dr. Martin Anderson, who happened to get tapped to be Reagan's chief domestic policy advisor in the mm -hmm. campaign, in the transition, and in the White House. And so I went off on coattails. I was independently qualified, but I told Marty when he asked me to join him, um, Martin Anderson was his name. Dr. Martin Anderson, unfortunately, no longer with us. Um, but Dr. <laughs> Dr. Anderson, I said, Marty, um, I will go with you, but I want you to know I'm just loyal to you, nobody else. And he said, that's what I want. So that's how I ended up there. And they had no idea who I really was, actually. So how long how long did you last in the Reagan administration? And when when did you decide to uh, write this book, which kind of puts you on the map. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So um, I was with the Reagan administration, uh, my boss, Martin Anderson, my mentor and boss. I've been at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, <laughs> working with him for six years, by the way, before we went. And um, so Dr. Anderson uh, retired or resigned um, uh, under good terms. I mean, he just, he had told Reagan he'd only be there a year. So in February of 1982, um, that was a little over a year, he did go back to the Hoover Institution where we had worked together for years. I was a graduate of Stanford University, undergrad and graduate. And so he left. And then I uh, was double-hatted from the White House and the Justice Department. Um, so I resigned not over the October surprise. Most people think that had nothing to do with it. I don't want to go into it now, but it was it was over the war on women's rights by the mm -hmm. uh, by the Republicans, and they're still at it. <laughs> Big time. Right. Well, um, I mean, but anyway, the bottom line is um, I was there until I published by the longest op-ed. Uh, fact-based op-ed ever published by the Washington Post took up a whole page, uh, and that was on late August of 1983. So I was there quite a while. Okay, so you were there. So what? What did you did you did to interact with Reagan much? What did you think of uh, yeah, Reagan? Yes, I I think I maybe I forgot to send you the photograph. I can do that. If oh no, I do. Right, I think you did. Yeah, yeah, sure. But uh, anyway, yes, um, I was uh, I interacted with Reagan. Um, and there are many photographs of just the two of us together with me and Vice President Bush and Reagan from that period of time in the West Wing. Cool. And there, um, I have a question here for you. Harlan mm -hmm. Stone wants to know, explain if you can to those. I mean, I wrote about uh, October Surprise and Hidden History, to, you know, to some extent. Uh, to explain yeah, if you, you can, what was, uh, to explain about the backdoor deal. Uh, to release the hostages. Yeah, and by the way, it's it's absolutely validated. I mean, by deathbed confessions of multiple sure. very high-level witnesses, including just this March 19th, as you probably know, Don, mm -hmm. um, on the front page of the uh, New York Times. Um, there's another uh, uh, co-conspirator in his 80s when he learned that Carter had gone into hospice, former President Carter, he decided he had to clear his conscience before he himself died. And he went clean to um, Peter Baker, who is the chief uh, White House correspondent for the New York Times, front page of the New York Times, March 19th of this year. The October surprise really happened. And was your question, what is it? Is that what you're Yeah, question? just explain for the, for people that yeah. might not know exactly, exactly what was involved. Was I mean, people, mainly when they think about it, they tend to think Bush was more involved than Casey. Uh, it doesn't oh, they look were. Like, they yeah, were. Reagan, so, was, Reagan was not directly involved. Yeah, Reagan was kind of clueless, apparently, it looks like. So is that, is that well, my he, impression? He was informed. He was informed, yeah. but he was not an operative. I see. Yeah. So so the, the idea was that they, because didn't they, 
Uh, I, I hope I don't get this mixed up. Well, well, there... Why don't I summarize it? Yes, please summarize. It. <laughs> okay. <laughs> by, by the way, my book October Surprise is available on Amazon. It was the first ever published by almost three years, and now there are many books on the subject, um, and confirming it. Uh, but in any case, uh, what the October surprise was, in October of 1980, that's the reference to October. In October of 1980, Carter was trying, President Carter was trying to get our hostages home desperately. And he wanted them home because he's a good person. Um, it also was going to help him win the election, of course. Well, the Reagan-Bush campaign, of which I was at a very high level, I was the chief aide to the chief domestic policy advisor to uh, candidate Reagan. And um, so we had learned, uh, by, the, by the way, these... Uh, is there any way to remove these questions or in the chat? Oh, from... are they distracting you? Sure. I got oh, you. very much so. And they okay, I'm with... sorry. I, okay, I, I usually oh, put them up for people so they can see that they're, you know, they can see. Well, what but you, can, you can read them and they, they're very okay. distracting. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, sure. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. So, so anyway, bottom line is the Reagan-Bush campaign uh, interfered with Carter's attempts to get the hostages home. And they were being held, some of them in even prison, by the way. One of the most horrible prisons uh uh, torture prisons in in the world in uh, in Tehran, Iran, at the time, and so the uh, Bush uh, Bush Senior, who was the vice presidential running mate, became, of course, Reagan's vice vice president. Um, he and William Casey, who became Reagan's first CIA director for good reason, <laughs> because they succeeded at the October surprise treason, and that treason was to to promise. To, to ask uh, the Khomeini regime through Khomeini's intermediary in a, in a meeting in Paris on the night of October 18th going into 19th of 1980, just before the election of November 4th, 1980. They got uh, Khomeini to agree not to release the hostages to Carter. And we knew from our focus groups, um, very sophisticated focus groups, um, before the election, that if Carter brought the hostages home between the 18th and the 25th, he'd win. But if we were able to keep Khomeini from bringing them home after the 25th, which he agreed not to do, uh, then Reagan was going to win by almost 10 points. And Reagan did win by a landslide because um, Bush and Casey interfered in the Paris meeting in late October, mid to late October, to prevent the hostages from coming, in coming home in exchange for five billion dollars worth of arms that were illegal and um, violated uh, the embargo, of course, while Khomeini was holding our hostages. And um, those arms did, in fact, flow to Iran once Reagan and Bush entered the White House big time. Yeah. So what what in, in retro afterwards, did anybody I mean, did Reagan ever express regret or anything that maybe he, this is something he shouldn't have just come in there? Obviously, it came under scrutiny eventually. I mean, this no, well, that's, no, of course not. Um, uh, Re Reagan understood, um, but he was not. They tried to keep him insulated. You know, yes. it's called plausible deniability or actually implausible deniability, but mm -hmm. they call it plausible deniability. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Um, but that's what that's what Iran Contra was. Um, the Iran side of Iran Contra was when about one hundred and fifty million dollars, just this little tip of the iceberg, of the five billion dollars worth of arms that had already flown for years, uh, flown into Iran um, through, for years through the Israeli intermediaries, uh, working with. Uh, the conspirators from the camp 1980 Reagan Bush senior campaign. Um, those those very small tip of the iceberg a number of arms leaked out 
uh, leaked out in a paper, I believe it was Syria or Lebanon. And uh, then it, it, it burst into the public. And so the cover story, the covert operation cover story that Ed Meese, uh, who was then uh, who was then Reagan's um, Reagan's uh, and is still for, alive. Ed Meese is still alive. And he's alive. still alive, barely, I think. <laughs> yes, but, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I will actually celebrate when that man dies. Okay. I will. Well, uh, well it, but my, uh, Michael Reconsuito, uh, you, you obviously know the story about him, right? That he was, no, oh, Michael Reconsuito. Okay, yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm almost done with it. Okay, Ron yes, Ron. go ahead, please. I want okay, you to talk so, about that. And then we should get into the into 9-11. Oh, yeah. Well, we have plenty of time. Um, We're definitely going to concentrate on that. Uh, okay. So um, anyway, uh, just just to finish up the Iran side of Iran-Contra. So when those uh, tip of the iceberg of the $5 billion that came from the October surprise treasonous deal before the election that was then carried out by the Reagan-Bush campaign once they got in office, um, when that came out, the administration needed a cover story. And the cover story was, oh, well, we have these few hostages in Lebanon. And uh, those were just arms that were sent. And we're really sorry. And we know it violated our own policy and embargo never to pay for uh, hostage release. Um, but that's all that was. And that was a lie. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I, if, if you, I, I mispronounced his name. What's his name? Michael Reagan. Well, Michael. Well, um, I've spoke to, spoken to him. I believe his. I believe he himself pronounces it. I could be wrong, but I recall he pronounces it Reconosciuto. Okay. I, I was. I don't know what I was pronouncing it as, but I don't, obviously don't know. I, I was in contact with his cousin for a while, but I think she deleted me along with lots of people or something. I don't know that I wrote. But is he still in prison? Wasn't he in prison for a while? No. Time? No. He's out. No, he's out. He he was re finally released. He was he he claims he was trumped up with a, uh, a meth charge that he was doing something yeah. making meth. Because he's he's the one that reported uh, Casey and Bush and all the people on the plane, right? Um, I'm sorry. What well, isn't he? Wasn't his story that he saw Bush and Casey and all the people on a secret plane to no, Iran not, or something? Not to my knowledge, no. Okay, no. I thought that's what he said. Okay. No, I, I think that was a, a con man named um, Gunther Russbacher. Oh, Russbacher. Okay, maybe that's it. Got mm -hmm. Russbacher. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on because 9 11 is, it seems to be you're, you're, where you're concentrating most of your efforts. Then you, you've had lots of great stuff. I tried to watch uh, the smoking curtain today and I watched but some behind of Behind the, the smoke curtain. Behind the smoke curtain. Yeah. And it kept, uh, it kept conking out the video, did. So I, I didn't Whoa. get to watch that much of it. But well, uh, that's so, very important for me to know. That could be your bandwidth problem. Um, it I will, could easily be. Yeah, it yeah, could be. I will, I will check with my videographer who put it up on archive.org. Um, but it's very important for people to watch it. Uh, maybe you could, is there going to be a page that goes with the uh, video of this where you could yeah. post that? Link? Yeah, we can post this. Tony can put up whatever we want there. And uh, I, I was looking at all the people that talked about it. My friend, Cynthia McKinney, who's been on the show a couple of times, a wonderful oh, person. Oh, Cynthia, she's my, one of my soul sisters. Oh, she is. Yeah, she's 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 still my favorite politician. <laughs> by the way, by the way, I could yeah. send you and I will. Um, I have uh, just a list of quotations of kudos from leaders of the truth movement, both 9-11 truth movement, JFK truth movement, all of them, uh, including Cynthia McKinney. And uh, Cynthia McKinney's quote, I mean, it's just verbatim as I can recall it, um, but she said, um, the, the most important, the best uh, documentary on the truth about 9-11 is Barbara Honiger's Behind the Smoke Curtain. Um, and so I can send you that quote. Sure, that'd be wonderful. And I, but you, you have lots, and obviously, 
it speaks. I, I got to meet Richard Gage last week, uh, last Saturday. And uh, I mean, he's been on the show before too. And uh, obviously great guy. I admire him very much. I didn't know. I asked him about you. I just mentioned you. I didn't know you were so close and you had lectured together and everything. Yeah, he's my, he's my sole brother. And then I love it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, that's why he, well, he's, he's just quite a character and obviously he's done yeah. great work. And uh, he's, his presentation was wonderful. And obviously yours is too. So how did you, in between October surprise and 9-11, what were you doing and how did it, were you still involved in politics and what got you so involved in 9-11? Yes. Truth? Yeah. And then uh, don't let me forget, because I'm going to answer that transitional bridge question yes, right now yeah. that you just mm -hmm. asked. But don't let me forget to make the direct link between the October surprise and 9-11, believe it or not. Please, that'd be in great. Terms of, in terms of theft of elections, presidential right. elections. Right. Okay, so to answer your question, yes. So after I, I resigned publicly from the Reagan White House, by the way, um, I published the longest fact-based opinion piece, totally fact-checked, took three weeks to fact-check it, everything checked out, a full page in the Washington Post. I believe that was, uh, it was either August 21st or 23rd of 1983. It's still online, Washington Post um, website. And um, that was exposing uh, the Reagan Bush seniors, Kemp, uh, administration's literal literal war on American women and girls, their legal rights and equality. Um, and that, <laughs> to my amazement, because I did that while I was still in the office, okay. dual headed at the West Wing. And so the you, I just excuse. So you sell. So you're basically coming. And I was a classical liberal way back when too. I was a member of the ACLU. You coming at this from the left. I don't know if you still are a leftist, but you, uh, you're. It sounds like it to me. Am I wrong there? Well, I'm a fiscal conservative and a social libertarian. Okay. Okay. So, so I'm a kind of a kind of, uh, I have my foot in both worlds, if okay. you will, but I, I'm an independent. I run for Congress as an independent here from the Monterey Peninsula, most recently on a 9-11 truth platform uh, against Leon Panettis, our former CIA director <laughs> and, uh, and Secretary of Defense's son, Jimmy Panetta, who, of course, was tapped by his father. And yeah. so one, uh, yeah. yeah, I've run for Congress. Um, but to, ask your, to answer your question, so after I resigned publicly, having just published while I was still in office um, in a very high level political appointee in the Reagan Bush senior administration, I published this op-ed in the Washington Post. And um, and it instantly, to my great surprise, I thought I was just going to resign and go back to my little house in here in the <laughs> coast of California and fade into the woodwork. Well, no. So what happened, because I was still in office when I did it, it exploded. There were 10 days. It was mid-August. It was the dog days of August. I guess the mainstream media needed something to talk about. But in any case, it exploded. And it kept escalating for 10 solid days, both national and international publicity. A friend of mine was on the Orient Express and went through, I think it was, he said, Sofia, Bulgaria. And uh, the, there was a, a newsstand, you know, and, and uh, he got the newspaper because my resignation was the banner headline in Sofia, Bulgaria, and all over Europe. And anyway headlines in uh, San Francisco Chronicle, New York Times, etc. And uh, then I resigned on national television. I resigned uh, live on either, I can't remember if it was the Today Show or Good Morning America. It was one of the two. So it exploded. 
And uh, so after that, I did. Uh, I did return to California. And uh, not too long after that, um, I worked on a number of books for local authors, including um, including Rianne Eisler on her world-famous book, The Chalice and the Blade, on equal rights for women. Uh, and then after that, Iran-Contra started spilling out. And in late 1986, when the spider in the middle of the web of everything right-wing fanatical, uh, Ed Meese, went on national television and put out the uh, cover story lie, about the Iran side of Iran-Contra. I knew he was lying. And I committed to myself to do my book, October Surprise. And my book was my book was published um, just uh, a few months after Bush Sr. won the election against Dukakis. So it, my book was published on May 12th of 1989. And it was so dangerous to George H.W. Bush, who had just become president, that he had his attorney general, his Justice Department, sue one of my chief sources in the book for allegedly lying for libel um, for on 60 counts. Richard Brennecke, who then almost exactly a year later, on May 4th of uh, 1990, um, in federal court in Portland, Oregon, uh, won. They found against George Bush Sr. They found for him that what he said to me in my book, October Surprise, was true. And it was, again, it exploded in headlines all over the world. So uh, I did that as the transition, my book, October Surprise, to then, believe it or not, after my book was published, I became a heroine to people who want the truth about anything. And I became anathema to the right-wing Republicans. Mm -hmm. You can imagine. Sure. And so um, as fate would have it, to end up answering your question, right after my book came out, not long, of course, I went on speaking tours and all of that. Um, and then I was interviewed for an award-winning documentary called Cover Up about Iran, the truth about Iran-Contra, about October Surprise, about all the CIA's uh, secret covert operations to overthrow governments all over the world, starting with Iran in 19, the Mossadegh regime, elected first president Mossadegh regime in Iran in 1953, along with the British intelligence. And uh, so I was in the movie cover-up. And then after that, um, the next thing that happened was, believe it or not, um, I was just looking for a job like anybody else to pay the rent. And uh, here in the Monterey Peninsula of Central Coast, California. Mm. And there was an ad uh, in the newspaper, the Monterey Herald, our local newspaper. There was an ad for uh, a military affairs journalist. Well, that's what I did. At the Hoover Institution, I co-published books with Dr. Martin Anderson on the military draft. So I was uh, hired. Um, and for 16 years, uh, until I retired, uh, in 19, uh, excuse me, in 2011, for 16 years before, during, and after 9-11, I was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, which our Department of Defense itself bills as uh, DOD's premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. And I was the senior journalist there for 16 years. And uh, then I retired from from the uh, U.S. Navy uh, in, um, I think it was June. It was in June of 2011. And ever since, I've been doing 9-11 Truths full-time. Well, that's, but what, you know, I want to 
after because there were so many corresponding uh, scandals, and that's I don't want to spend too much time on Reagan and Bush, but you know I, they don't people don't talk about them too much now. So I'm wondering, especially during Bush years, you had the Danny Casolaro, the octopus, yeah. and all that, and yeah. lots more strange deaths, including his own. Did you follow that? I mean, I would imagine of you must course. have been interested in that. Of course, I went to Danny Casolaro's memorial service. Of course. Oh wow! Well, you definitely know. I, I've tried to. Is, wasn't his his uh, brother a doctor that was interested for a while? I, I, I but I. He interested in what? It, it, he seemed to realize that something was suspicious about his brother's death. Well, at the memorial <laughs> service, of course, the family just couldn't face that. There was no. There was no oh, really? mention, okay. mention of that whatsoever. Yeah, that was up above Santa Rosa or something like that, above San Francisco. I went I went to that with Bonnie Faulkner, uh, mm -hmm. who has the uh, Guns and Butter radio show for years on the, mm -hmm. on the KPFA out of Berkeley, California, mm -hmm. and the Pacifica Radio Network. We went together. Um, but what's your question about that? Well, I just wondered if you kept up because there are a lot of, you know, there, you had Iran Contra, you had uh, Gary Webb and all that. All that. I mean, that's all kind of related. They're all, they of all came it's related. Out, yeah, it's all completely, came completely related because it's all about the cover up lie about Iran Contra. I right. mean, the October surprise is the original sin of the Iran side of Iran Contra. And the whole Contra side really was just to distract or deflect attention from what mattered, which was the theft of the 1980 election by high treason by the Reagan Bush senior campaign. Did you ever have any contact with Jimmy Carter? I'm doubting it. He's still alive, but I mean. Uh, no, not personally, not personally, but of course I followed uh, everything about President Carter. Um, he, the President Carter is a highly ethical individual and he, he went public, I believe it was on something like 60 Minutes or Nightline at one point where he was asked about this. Uh, about the October surprise. And he said, well, I've been told about it by some very high-ranking people, but he wouldn't take a position. He should have, but he didn't. Well, yeah, I have, and I have, you know, as a JFK, you know, my wheelhouse issue is the JFK assassination. I started in the mid-70s as a teenager. I was a volunteer for Mark Lane's Citizens Committee of Inquiry mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, was famous critic of the Warren Report. So I, I've been obsessed with that forever. And, and that mm -hmm. led me down all these other rabbit holes, but Jimmy Carter. Well, I've been in for, for about four or five years now in a row, and will again this year. Uh, the big one of the big they they always have two or three competing conferences in Dallas. Yes, the yes. anniversary, which I hate because you have to choose where you're going to go between. Um, but for four or five years now, I have given presentations, invited and requested presentations on the uh, links, parallels between 9/11 and JFK. Sure. Well, that well, we talk about that. I mean, I, I well, you, you're in better with those people than I am. They hate me. I don't know why, but they do. Why do so, they hate you? Why? I, I'm so controversial, Barbara. Believe me, I, I you well, know, I, what what about JFK assassination? Are you controversial about? Well, not on that, but it's everything oh. else. I mean, it, because I I don't. I'm a populist, so I'm I'm far left on some. I'm Huey Long's my hero. Uh, you know, I'm a redistributionist, but also far right too. I speak out against, about the anti-white rhetoric of, of, of society in many cases. So people don't know what to make of me, but I think those people just kind of shut me off because they well, think you I'm mean, You mean you think for yourself? Is the yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But but uh, so they haven't asked me to play in any reindeer games there. I don't know why, even though I've been at this longer than almost all of them. Really, I go back again to the mid 70s when I was a teenager and uh, I, I met Mark Lane. I met Harold Weisberg. I, I met these people. And uh, my book, Hidden History, talks about all this stuff. 
And uh, so I, well, I'm, I'm saying they won't invite you or allow you to speak at these JFK conferences in Dallas. They haven't asked me. Well, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask them. You know, I'm, I'm too proud to do that. <laughs> now, I, it's because I so many of them are. Look, look what's happening with it. Well, I don't want to get sidetracked on this because they've wrote a Substack about them. We should get into 9 11. Really yes, should. let's get it. Let's go. So, talk about what, first of all, what are the parallels? Well, however you want to start it. How, how did you get interested in it? Um, you know, what, what started you, you know, how, how soon did you get it? I mean, I, I doubted for the moment I turned on the TV and saw what was happening, but how, how long did it take you to be skeptical about it? Uh, about one, one second. That <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very, it's very parallel to, um, you know, the, the whole world uh, on Jan on January 20th of 1981, saw Reagan and Bush take their oath of office, right? Mm -hmm. In the west side of the Capitol for the first time ever. The, most people don't know the inaugurations used to be held on the east side. Reagan started the tradition of holding it on the west side. And as uh, Reagan and Bush took their oath of office, the hostages were released. It was pre-planned and coordinated that they be released only when both Reagan and then Bush took the oath of office, right? Because it was Bush who had cut the deal with William Casey. Right. All right. Casey, by the way, William Casey had been Reagan's campaign manager in 1980, his second campaign manager, including during the whole October surprise negotiations with the Khomeini regime to delay the release of our hostages. So, um, so where, where was I? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, oh, no, I, I know where I was. I know where I was. Um, <laughs> so it was very parallel. Um, the moment they took their oath of office, of course, <laughs> come on, I knew from that moment on, having already, you know, been in the most secure room of the National Reagan Bush campaign headquarters um, before the um, uh, that was that was, you know, during the campaign before the election in uh, November 4th, 1980. I knew that we'd cut a deal. Um, and I talked about that already. So. When, when the hostages were released instantaneously, just as Reagan and Bush finished their, their inaugural oath, uh, I knew. I knew exactly what had happened. And um, my book, October Surprise, was effectively inevitable from that moment on. And from uh, when, I, when I arrived at the Naval Postgraduate School, which is a U.S. military Navy base here in Monterey, California that morning, uh, which was a little bit before nine o'clock because I was, you know, reported to work at nine o'clock. Of course, that was just before noon uh, back on the East Coast. I had no idea what had just happened in New York City or the Pentagon for that matter. And when I got to the gate, I was not allowed in. And it happened to be the public affairs officer who was at the gate, the checkpoint at this military institution with big wrought iron fences, you know, with spikes on the top all around it. Mm. Uh, and um, it, it's still the way it is. It's a military institution, even though it's a university. It's a graduate research university, but it's of the Department of Defense. And uh, it's a real university. So anyway, they wouldn't let me in. And, <laughs> and I, it was my own boss at the gate. And I said, well, well why, why not? What's happening? He said, you don't know. And he said, well, we're at war. That's all he said. We're at war. Go <laughs> home. I'll call you. Okay. Well, how did he know we were at war? You know, that was all pre-planned. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so I go to my mother's home in Carmel, California. And uh, I walk in. My brother happened to be there. And they're, they're talking about, you know, 
carpet samples. <laughs> they don't know either. And I say, you got to turn on the TV. I was just uh, not allowed in the gate at the Navy school for my job. And uh, I was told by the man at the gate, the public affairs officer, my boss, that we're at war. And they said, what? And we turned on the TV. And of course, they were showing the, um, by that time, they were showing the collapse of the towers ad nauseum over and over yeah. uh, on television. And I watched that. And I had a presentment, I guess you call it, that there's something terribly wrong with this picture. Um, there was a little bit on the Pentagon, not very much. And I thought to myself, well, now, hold on a second. They're basically claiming this is like Pearl Harbor. They're claiming this is a kamikaze attack. And um, I happen to know, because I'd done the research and done public presentations on it, I happen to know that Pearl Harbor was a complete setup. Yes, Japan was a real enemy, but oh, it was yes. a yeah. setup. And we set up the USS uh, Arizona and the other ships to be attacked for yep. very spectacular video and photographs to get Congress and the American people all get their blood boiling and, and get us into the war. That's right. Where 80 to 90 percent of the public was uh, didn't want to get into the war until Pearl Harbor. Right. So I knew um, I knew that if they were <laughs> they were calling it the new Pearl Harbor. And I said, well, just a minute. The original one was intended. And, 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 and set up. So from, exactly. From the get go, I knew that this new Pearl Harbor meme that was put out by everybody, including President George H.W. Bush in his memoirs, in his diary that night, the new Pearl Harbor happened today. Everybody was saying those same words <laughs> yeah. in the BBC and U.S. mainstream television. Come on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess I guess my work on on uh, exposing the truth, all my research for years, 23 years now, 22 years now, uh, on 9-11 on stemmed from that very moment when they said the new Pearl Harbor happened today. Yeah. Well, and, and it's you know, the problem that we have in trying to look into 9-11, a little bit like the JFK assassination. You know, Mark Lane, when he wrote uh, Russian Judgment, in the introduction, it had a great impact on me. Um, he had great impact, man. He, he was responsible for me being a civil libertarian, which I still am today. And there's almost none of us left in this country. I'm sorry, to be a what libertarian? Civil civil libertarian. Oh, yeah, I'm a civil libertarian. Well, well welcome to the small club. I was I actually, yes. I was you asked. actually believe in free speech? The, I do. the speech of people I who disagree with you? I believe in freedom. <laughs> I, by the way, I know this is shocking, but I believe in uh, biological freedom for women as well as men. Oh, 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 that's wonderful. Me too. I freedom for everybody, but freedom uh, for everyone. And you, and you believe in free speech. You actually accept the Bill of Rights. So that's what most yeah, people no, don't. Yeah, yeah. But, I like, but, I like the Constitution. I actually <laughs> think, you know, I mean, the Constitution does give you originally a right to bear arms as part of a state militia, and uh, I think the Supreme Court was wrong in their decision saying that there was an individual right. No, I, I don't okay. agree with that decision. Nevertheless. Um, well, you know, I disagree with you, but I respect you because I'm a civil libertarian. But I, but I, what I want to get into what Mark Lane said in that book. He said, because this crime, the JFK assassination, is not, it's not being investigated. It's never been investigated, honestly. It's going to provide grounds for uh, fertile ground for speculation. And that's what it did, boy. So you've got tons of theories. The Zapruder film was altered. Uh, you know, all all these things. It was altered big time. Yes, exactly. So, but all these things were created because it was. So, nine eleven just carried that to the next extreme. Okay, were there planes? 
where there are holograms and there are laser beams. Dr. Judy Believe Wood. Believe me, there it, were no holograms. Yeah, so but you but you can see because it wasn't honestly investigated. I I invented I invented I I interviewed Scott Forbes who uh, worked in the Trade Center and uh, wasn't there that day. And he was still in fear. He was in England. And uh, he talked about how, you know, he tried to tell them all uh, from the New York Port Authority up to the 9-11 Commission that, hey, you know, there was a lot of weird stuff going on in the area. All our team who luckily avoided it because they weren't there that day, we saw all this weird stuff going on. We thought you guys should know about it. He assumed that these, you know, he's being patriotic and, uh, you know, there were well, these- the weekend, the, the, the writings on the wall when you find out that the weekend, it was the weekend before, maybe two weekends before, but the Saturday and Sunday, I believe the weekend before, um, they they turned off all the security cameras. Yeah, that's and, what he was and, talking about. And, and hmm. kicked out all of the bomb-sniffing dogs. Yes, yes. The- that's how, but the 9-11 Commission tells now this this guy, again, it's like Dr. Kerry Mullis, the guy who invented the PCR test. Nobody knows more about it than him. It's not a conspiracy. Same thing with this nobody's going to know more about what was going on in that area than the people that work there. And yet they just dismiss them. They won't talk to them. And in their report, they write, there were no mysterious power outages. There were no, none of these things are going on. So that's the, I mean, how anybody places any credence to this, I don't know, but I, I'm sorry. I'm By the way, more- I would like to go on the record here um, with uh, what I call a burning fact, mm-hmm. uh, an explosion, an explosive fact. Um, I know my, my dear friend and, soul brother in the 9-11 truth movement richard gage and yeah. we've done a speaking tour in uh, you know europe and the uk just the two of us together we're very very close we share information every single day um talk on the phone every day almost um he's he's on a, a tour right now on the east coast just yes. speaking tour, yes. going up north um but anyway um Rich, Richard and architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, of which he was the president, the CEO and founder, and uh, the head of it for 16 years, and now he's now he's on his own, um, has been for about three years yes, now, yes. Uh, and he's on our board. He's on the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry board. Um, I invited him to join the board after he left architects and engineers, and he jumped at the opportunity. We're really lucky to have him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm chairman of the board. And have been for some time now. And what I wanted to mention is, um, I think it's a mistake, believe it or not, that the movement focuses so much, not that it's not important, but I think it's a mistake that the movement, the 9-11 Truth Movement about the World Trade Center, focuses so completely on World Trade Center 7. Yes, World Trade Center 7 was not hit by a plane. It clearly came down by classic controlled demolition. The first third of its collapse in perfect free fall that's been acknowledged by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Yes, yes, all of that is true. However, it's still a lot of work to get the man and woman on the street to connect that to the trade towers, which is what they care about. Now, there's a far more important twin facts that are far more important and more smoking guns more smoking guns in my opinion most people don't know this before a plane hit either tower way up 70 some floors for one of them 90 some floors for another before a plane hit either world trade center one or two on the morning of 9 11 there were massive deep basement explosions in both towers before the planes hit now any kindergartner knows the planes didn't do that and so even if there were hijackers in control which they weren't in control they could never have 
the real perpetrators could never have allowed alleged hijackers who couldn't even fly a Cessna. Okay. They would never have allowed their entire conspiracy to try to bring down those towers while the entire national international TV was focused on the towers for the second hit. They would have never left that up to, uh, you know, pilots of any kind. Sure. The planes were remote controlled. And the very fact that there were massive explosions in the basements of both towers before the planes hit, 14 seconds before World Trade Center 1 was hit, the first one hit, 17 seconds before World Trade Center 2 was hit, the second one hit, first to come down, that's also a so-called anomaly. Uh, that very fact proves, logically, that the same real inside insider co-conspirators who were in charge of setting off the basement explosions before the planes hit had to be in control of the planes by remote control and were. Because once the explosions went off in the basement, the towers had to come down. Yeah. And they needed their cover story, their excuse, which was the plane impacts. Right. Well, I agree with you. you the, the, there probably is too much emphasis on Building 7 because you can go even further down the rag, rabbit hole and talk about Building 6 and, uh, you know, or, Mr. Or Sonnenfeld, who's, you know, on the gold, the missing gold. I mean, there's... there's they they uh, were all, all of the buildings were, yeah. were destroyed. There's so many things going on there, but you're, the, but you're right because... The attention should be on the twin towers because as we and you know what what do we know? I mean, to me, the most basic element I try to stress is that their own report says, well, you know, you know, the heat the heat got up to eight hundred or some degrees or something like that. Science tells us steel doesn't melt until it's twenty seven hundred or whatever it is. So yeah, it's impossible, and so, there was melted steel running like lava for months in the pit afterwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, how you, you have you have things like it's a plane hits 80 stories above or whatever. And the Naudette brothers and people like that are talking about people on fire in the lobby. What? How? No, there's, in, in fact, let, let me just say, it's important to go back to the lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiries yes. because our lawyers committee is the, it's this one of two organizations, but really the main one on the entire planet that for seven or eight years now, and we're still the only one, uh, who has brought not just one, but multiple lawsuits, complaints, legal complaints in federal court against the U.S. government, against the U.S. attorney up in Manhattan, which is the legal jurisdiction for the for the Twin Towers and World Trade Center 7 and the whole, the whole World Trade Center complex, all buildings of which were destroyed on 9-11, not just not just three, not just one, two and seven. Right. <laughs> they were the ones most destroyed. Mm -hmm. And most spectacularly destroyed because of pre-placed incendiaries and explosives in all three of them. But they were also, all of them were destroyed on 9-11. But we've also um, filed uh, legal complaints, um, grand jury petitions about the anthrax attacks uh, with the U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C. We filed our anthrax attacks, our explosive anthrax attacks petition. Um, with every single one of the 535 members of the House and the Senate of the U.S. Congress. Okay, and so it's very important for people to to go to our website because you can read all of these for yourself. And we're still in the court system to this day. We've gone all the way to the Supreme Court. Okay, so it's not that there hasn't been a real investigation. The Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry has done a real investigation. Well, yeah, of course. Which is one the government should have done. 
Yeah, it's not the government you, but, has never done one. Right. Well, that's and that's the same thing as the JFK assassination. Lots of us have, you know, we've done great investigate. We've done great work, you know, with the resources we have. We yeah. don't have their resources. We don't have the resources of a television network or anything like that. But none of those people have done it. And the JFK assassination, 9-11 as well, clearly, not a single mainstream journalist has really done much work on it. I mean, in no, J- not, not, not any real mainstream journalist, no. Um, I do want to give our website for, for because oh, people of need, course, give all your people. Links. People really, there's a fly here. Um, <laughs> people, I'm outdoors. People really need to go to our lawyers committee for 9 11 inquiry website. And the reason for that is you will not only will you at the top along the top of the homepage is a horizontal menu, and you click on those gold words in the menu. Um, there's one, for instance, uh, World Trade Center grand jury petition, another when anthrax attacks grand jury petition, and on and on. And you, there are about 10 uh, menu items. You click on those and there's a little drop-down menu. And in the drop-down menu, you will be able to open and read every single word and all of our evidentiary exhibits that are filed with federal courts in the United States, um, both in New York City and in Washington, D.C. And so you need to read them for yourself. You need to see the evidence for yourself. The evidence is dispositive that that 9-11 was an inside job. Um, It was the United States, elements of the United States military intelligence complex and the Bush-Cheney administration, beginning with W. Bush and Cheney himself and Rumsfeld and and all of them. They were all uh, inside co-conspirators on these attacks. Okay, against our own civilians, almost 3,000 people of our own civilians, and by the way, a few from 80 countries around the world, especially because of who was on the planes and in the World Trade Center towers. So 80 countries. This was an attack on the entire world and World Trade Center. Absolutely. I, I, there, well, there, uh, I, I'm gonna, there are some questions in the chat for you, but I hope you can say, can you say for the second hour or two? I hope. Uh, yes, I can. And let oh. me give the, let me give the uh, lawyers committee website. Yes. Cause somebody already asked, where can they watch your documentary? Is that where they yeah. can do it? Okay. Go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm going to give all that right now. I'll do that. And we can give it again. Okay. Um, so our website for the lawyers committee is LC like Larry Charlie, LCFOR 911. So it's lcfor911.org. And you just open that up. And on the homepage right now, you scroll down just a little bit. And there is a video screen with the arrow in the middle of it. Click on that. And you will see our Lawyers Committee uh, Symposium for the anniversary, or just just past uh, 22nd anniversary of 9-11. We have a four-hour event, which is um, you, you will learn everything about what the Lawyers Committee does and will be doing by watching that. I highly recommend that you go about 58 minutes in, which is just before my presentation on the anthrax attacks begins. You need to see that, and you need to see the presentation immediately after my 24-minute presentation, about a 20-minute presentation by professor and world-renowned international law attorney and professor Francis Boyle, who is one of the world's, if not the world's, foremost expert on bioterrorism, biowarfare, and anthrax. And those two together... You better be lying down, not just sitting down when you watch them. Yeah. And then you had you had the virtual tour thing that uh, is, is yeah. very long so, as well. So, 
so if you could if you could ask your Ivy person, whoever does the the uh, page for yeah. the show that goes along with the video link or or the video we'll the screen, so please put all of those links, um, everything that I sent you in the background, or if that could go up. Wonderful. Okay, and I I brought I brought a big gun out here to. Uh, Chris Graves is uh, he's my one of my primary researchers. He's done so much work for me. He knows he knows the minutia of 9-11 like nobody oh, good. else. I don't think I know Chris and Graves. He's, and know. he's very excited about talking to you. And he, Hi, he can ask you he can ask you better questions than I can. Chris Great. Barbara, uh Chris, what are your impressions? I know I know you have lots of things. You know, he has helped me out so much on 9-11 and Flight 93 and all kinds of you really stuff we found out great stuff. Uh, Chris, great. I'm glad you could join us. Chris, have you, have you, Chris, have you seen my behind the smoke curtain? What really happened at the Pentagon on 9-11 and what didn't and why it matters? I haven't gotten a chance, unfortunately, to see that yet. But. Okay, well, have you seen my 9-11 Museum virtual walking tour documentary? Uh, did that come out within the last year? I feel no. embarrassed for saying that no. I, I missed. No. A, I've been out of the loop, like health wise. So yeah, well, well, feel feel free to uh, communicate with me. I'll get. I'll give my uh, email okay. address for everybody and you. It's B uh, BS perfect for a journalist, right? BS. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's B S H O N E G G. No E R at the end, like yeah. in my actual name. B S H O N E G G at gmail.com. And um, anybody, including yourself, who wants to follow up when you've watched those two, <laughs> okay, and you'll get the link from Don. Um, please do watch them. You need to know what's in them. I have every American, everybody in the world needs to know what's in those. Yeah. Okay. Oh, absolutely! Um, I, I I can't wait to. to and watch. Um, and so what I was going to say, um, well, I was going to finish by saying. Uh, any oh oh yeah right the subject line anyone including yourself or Don who emails me um, as a follow up to this show or at all about nine eleven needs to put in the subject line follow up to Don Jeffrey's show otherwise it's a I lot of emails I get five hundred emails a day I couldn't even read the subject lines I would not see your email otherwise so the subject line to b s h o n e g g at gmail dot com would be Follow up to Don Jeffrey's show. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So what's your question? I had a question about, I, I know that you wrote a book on the October surprise. Right. Um, did you ever come across any evidence of uh, Osama bin Laden's oldest brother being involved with the October surprise? Because uh, I found uh, an article on the old history commons. Uh, oh, the answer is yes. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. Not directly. However, after the fact, um, in my book, October Surprise, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's yeah. on available on Amazon.com, the first ever published by at least three years uh, after all of the other books on the subject that then came out. Um, and it has been, uh, you know, upheld by deathbed, multiple deathbed confessions of the co-conspirators, including CIA co-conspirators, by the way, since. Um, okay, so um, let's see, what was I going to tell you? Your question was about, oh, yes, Osama bin Laden's older brother, Salem bin Laden. Yeah. So I believe there were like 51 children because uh, Islam lets you have four wives at any one time. And uh, the head of the bin Laden clan, he was very prolific. And uh, so, as I recall, 
Osama bin Laden was uh, was number 17, but the very firstborn was Salem bin Laden. And um, in their very traditional um, family, uh, conservatively con traditional religious family, of course, all of the younger brothers especially looked up to Salem bin Laden. So after, after the October surprise and after the theft of the 1980 election, uh, it came out, and it's in my book, that um, I believe it was a VAC-111 plane. I, I can't remember exactly, but it was not the SR-71 plane, believe me. I think it was a VAC-111. But in any case, it was a plane that had been owned by Salem bin Laden, uh, or he had bought it. In any case, he was flying in it, and it crashed and killed him. It crashed and killed him. And the plane was, this was in Texas, as I recall, and... Um, my, I believe it's in my book, October Surprise. But the, but then the claim was that um, that the person who bought it was none other than George W. Bush. After the plane crashed, he killed Salem bin Laden, and it turns out that Salem bin Laden and um, an intermediary for the bin Ladens um, had actually basically given George. W. Bush, when he was a an oil wildcatter in Texas and was trying to make some money, they actually gave him about fifty thousand uh, dollars and got him set up in the wildcatting business. So he was he was beholden to the Bin Ladens and in particular Salem Bin Laden. He was very close to Salem Bin Laden. Um, so that's the link. It's to my knowledge not a direct link to the October Surprise meetings in Paris, um, but who knows. Yeah, I just wanted to bring make that bring that to people's uh, attention because uh, I want to I want to put a, a, a few questions on the screen for you, uh, Barbara. Mm -hmm. can, can you see that question? Yes. Yeah. Can you take the question down though? Yeah. Okay. So that's what do you think of Mike Rupert and Mike, the late right Mike Rupert? I guess. Well, Mike Rupert know. was a colleague of mine. Yeah. And uh, most people don't know this. I, I, this is important story for people to true story. Like everything I say, it's a fact. Um, people need to understand what really happened to get Mike Rupert to write that incredible book called Crossing the Rubicon, which was one of the very first. He and Jim Mars uh, were really first out of the box with uh, books mm -hmm. on 9-11. Jim Mars was called Inside Job. Mike Rupert's was Crossing the Rubicon. Um, so the, the most important chapters in Crossing the Rubicon that it made Mike Rupert famous were actually all of my research, every single line. Um, and those are chapters 19 and 20 on the war games. The critical fact that there were multiple war games, including live fly exercises, yeah. um, up in New York. Um, and uh, they were NORAD exercises. Uh, beginning uh, early in the morning of 9-11, uh, at least one of them on a scenario of, of a plane crashing into one of the World Trade Center towers. And uh, for the, I believe it was eight days leading up to 9-11, um, NORAD had held multiple hijack scenario uh, attack exercises. Uh, so the one on 9-11 was not the only one. And that was the reason that, or that was the excuse, put it that way, pre-planned it pretext that NORAD didn't uh, respond in time. Right? It took an hour and 45 minutes, really. Um, so their pretext excuse was that, well, we were doing this exercise on something almost exactly like the actual attacks, and we thought it was just the exercise. Well, um, Mike Rupert became famous for my work. And uh, if you go to the 
to the acknowledgments at the beginning. It was a very interesting story. Mike Gruber tried to steal my work. And um, the proof of that is that the very first uh, uh, major conference that was ever held on 9-11 Truth uh, was at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. That was either, I think it was 20, 2005, I believe. In any case, Mike Rupert was the keynote speaker. And uh, I had already come out with my work on the war games, okay? Um, and I had done so on, uh, on these websites for researchers. I hadn't yet published, or actually I had published online, but I hadn't published a book. And so um, <laughs> I was working at the Naval Postgraduate School. I was senior military affairs journalist there. And so I had to, it started, I think it was seven o'clock in San Francisco at the Herbst Theater, which is where the, um, which is where the UN treaty was signed. Okay, so it's a very beautiful and historic venue. So I got there about five minutes before it started, and the lights were already out. I sat in the back of the theater, and then Carol Brule of the Northern California Truth Alliance 9-11 group introduced, she was the MC. she introduced Mike Rupert as the keynote speaker, and then he took the podium, and the spotlight was on him. So he starts out his presentation. <laughs> Um, and he gets about five minutes into it. I'm sure this is all on video somewhere. I know Carol Belay has the video. And she lives in San, San Francisco, Berkeley area. Uh, I know her well. And um, so he gets on the podium with a spotlight on him. And very shortly, ten, five, ten minutes max. And there's going to be noise in the background here as a, somebody goes by. Um, Briefly, they're going away. It's okay. We're already hearing the birds. We know you're outdoors. It's cool. <laughs> I'm outside. <laughs> well, there's a road just up above my yeah, head. Yeah. Anyway, so so he's about five or ten minutes into the keynote speech and the first conference on 9-11 ever in this magnificent historic Herbst Theater. Mike Rupert stops his present, planned presentation, and he blurts out into the audience that there's this terrible person named Barbara Honegger who is oh. claiming that there are these war games, these NORAD war games. Um, and it's a complete and total lie. They had absolutely nothing to do with the NORAD uh, delayed response. Well, I was in shock. And uh, later in that conference, it went on for at least two days, maybe three days. I actually gave a presentation during the lunch break on the exercises and the entire Everyone in the conference was in the lunchroom and they were galvanized by the evidence. But I was not allowed by Carol Brule to speak. Many people tried to fit me in and she wouldn't allow it. So a year went by and Mike Rupert was again the next year around the anniversary. He was the keynote speaker again. Still working at the Naval Postgraduate School as a senior military affairs journalist. I get there with about five minutes to go and it's the lights are out in the theater. And I'm sitting in the back. And Carol Boulay introduces Mike Rupert, the keynote speaker. He takes the podium and the spotlight is on him again a year later. He starts his presentation and about five minutes in, again, I'm sure on videotape, Mike Rupert stops his formal presentation and he says, I have an apology to make to Barbara Honecker. She was right. Hmm. And then he goes into the criticality of the war games and exercises on 9-11, actual 
physical attack scenarios on 9-11. And then, as he, he, he went into his officer and gentleman mode, <laughs> and he... He said, he said something to the effect of almost verbatim, well, I guess it's unfortunate Barbara Honiger isn't in the audience. And I yelled out, yes, I am. I'm here. And then he had this, he asked for the, the house lights to be turned on and to have me stand up for an ovation. Oh, wow. So he won you over. You ended up in it. What, what do, you, do you think uh, anything mysterious about his death? A lot of people speculated on that. No, I don't. Um, he was very depressed yeah. and mm -hmm. I happen to know a lot about the extreme lengths to which he did before his suicide um, to ensure that no one would be able to reasonably claim that he was killed. No, this was his mm -hmm. choice. And mm -hmm. his beloved dog was locked. Uh, or at least the door was closed into the vehicle that he used with a note um, by his body to please find a home for his dog. Hmm. Uh, there's one, I was just going to put this other question up on there for you. And then I know Chris has more questions. This, this guy was waiting a long time. Uh, Asked Barbara about the murder of Marine Corps Colonel James Subbo, who was murdered to cover up the flights to Altura Marine Corps, unmarked 130s. Well, I have absolutely no knowledge of this at all. Sorry. Okay. Well, I just but okay. Well, I mean, is but, it October? I mean, is it October surprise? Or I don't know. I don't. I think we, we figured heard you it. would I've never know. Heard of it. I don't. My audience, you know, they know things sometimes. That's why Chris well, is however, incredible. However, yeah. However, this is not this is not former Marine Corps officer Savo, but even more important, directly 9/11 related, um, is the alleged murder-suicide, um, the alleged murder-suicide, including of the family dog of um, yes. Philip Marshall. Yes, yes. Yeah. Philip, Mar Philip Marshall was was murdered. His entire family was murdered yeah. Yeah, in, the, uh, in the Gold Rush area yeah. of California, yeah. uh, including the family dog. And yeah. um, I happen to know from his sister, I've been on a radio show um with her with the sister mm -hmm. um and his sister revealed on the radio show i was on because i did lots of research on it, their murders um mass murders um the reason they were mass murdered is that he had received a copy of the 28 pages that were highly classified until i <laughs> had the vision personally uh with the lawyers committee to to figure out how to get them released, which they were in late 2016, finally, because of my vision as to how to get them released. But at that time, through both the Bush-Cheney uh, two administrations and almost to the end of the Obama administration for almost 16 years, um, they were highly classified because they proved the Saudi connection to 9-11. Uh, to Okay, big time, especially Bandar Bush, uh, who was the Saudi ambassador before, during, and after 9-11, and was so close to the Bush family, including then-President George W. Bush Jr., that they called him Bandar Bush. He was like a member of the family. Mm -hmm. So um, Philip Marshall had received a copy from none other than Senator Bob, what was his name? Graham. Bob, Bob Graham. Graham. Bob Graham, yes. okay. Wow. Yeah, they killed him for it. 
Yeah, it was his death was certainly I, I talked about that in history. I mean, it, it, it certainly had all the earmarks of that. I mean, uh, and his he, book, he was almost done with his book. Yeah, that was using the 28 pages to expose the Saudi connection. Well, his uh, his first 9-11 book was The Big Bamboozle, I believe, right? Yeah, there were two before that. There yeah, was another yeah, two of them, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and I believe they're still available on Amazon, on Amazon.com. Very expensive, uh, though, usually. So I, would like, I would like to go on the record saying that the whole Saudi connection, of course, is just the next layer in of the uh, Muslims did it a cover story. Right. That's I mean, what I they were the, the Saudis were the Saudis were co-conspirators with the Bush Cheney administration. Okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, then I mean, got, with, then you so, got the Pakistani ISI, you got the Mossad, you got the MI5, yeah. MI6. There's all many they're, they're different all players. Involved. They're yeah. everyone involved, especially especially the uh, the Project for New American Century, uh, PNAC, Zionist Israeli connection. Yeah. Absolutely. So what do you do you when you look at what happened afterwards? I, I, I say we're living. I call it America 2.0. That's the way I refer to our country now. And I think America 2.0 was born on September 11th. Uh, America 3.0. That's, I mean, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. It's gone for a long time. I'm like the COVID thing is like made it 3.0. in my Yeah. Opinion. Well, you're you're I know you're where, you know, I, I don't know if you need to check out my new book, Masking the Truth, How COVID-19 Destroyed Civil Liberties and Shut Down the World. Sherry Tenpenny, who's uh, she's out there listening. I hope she's doing better. She's at a health care yeah. recently. She wrote the forward. Um, you know, obviously, we've moved into new territory. But do you think 9-11 was. Um, in some way, a dress rehearsal where they got people to just swallow this nonsense and without, I mean, they didn't, we had what, about an hour and a half almost where these planes were flying around in airspace and the world's biggest defense system that's ever been seen did nothing except maybe shot, shoot down flight 93 and lie about it. I mean, they did nothing else. And the year before Payne Stewart was up in the air and a golfer and, and they sent fighter jets up within 15 minutes. So how do you think it's because people were so gullible and they fell for this stuff? They fell for firefight, you know, people getting mad if you even question anything about it, you know, and uh, do you think that was well, that? I, I want to make a, a direct, direct connection between 9-11 and COVID, the pandemic. And that connection is the anthrax attacks. I yes. mean, seriously. Okay. Yeah. So my presentation, if everybody goes to, um, and I'll give you the, some of the highlights here. Um, but the reason that the, 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 the government's official story during the Bush-Cheney administration up to this very day, the government's official story, despite what the mainstream media wanted you to believe that maybe bin Laden and Saddam Hussein were behind the anthrax, that's not the official story. The official story is that it was the anthrax attacks were an inside job from an army biowarfare yes. facility. They yes. call it biodefense. Or Detroit, it was the right? Army's actual biodefense yeah. and biowarfare facility at Fort Detrick. They claim. Now, we have proven in our in our anthrax grand jury petition that is on our website, the Lawyers Committee website, and that's lcfor911.org. Go to the top menu, across the top of the homepage, click on anthrax grand jury petition, pull down and read our petition and the evidentiary exhibits. We prove that it was not Fort Dietrich. It was not Bruce Ivins. He not only didn't do it, he couldn't have done it. Physically could not have done it. Okay. But we do show that another army 
base and facility, Dugway Proving Ground, uh, did do it together with Battelle Memorial Institute, which is a CIA front, okay? So the anthrax was developed at Battelle, and then it was mass produced, and there is still a huge stockpile of the most weaponized anthrax on the planet at Dugway Proving Ground. Okay, now what is, what is the link to the pandemic? <laughs> because our government admits it or claims it was an inside job from the U.S. Army. Okay. All right. So if the anthrax was from the U.S. Army, nevertheless, despite the claiming it was their own inside job, what happened? Two letters with the most militarized anthrax ever on the planet. One trillion spores per gram, so aerosolized that it was extremely deadly and contagious. It came out of the envelopes like a gas. The most deadly anthrax in all of the letters went to two Democratic senators, no Republicans, <laughs> two Democratic senators who just happened to be delaying the passage of the Patriot Act which mm -hmm. took away our civil liberties to this yes. day, yep. okay? Okay, so it turns out, it turns out that because it went to Congress, Congress was t literally terrorized yeah. into passing the Patriot Act and into agreeing and in almost immediately passing a huge spending increase for effectively bio-warfare research facilities, BSL-3 and BSL-4 labs across the United States and around the world, by the way, some 46 of them in the Ukraine, which was the express reason that Putin gave in his speech on February 14th, two years ago, or 2020, right? Yeah. Um, 2021. Anyway, February 14th, just before uh, his uh, they invaded from Belarus. 2021, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the very first inv invasion. He gave a speech in the morning in Moscow, out of Moscow, um, that uh, it was to go uh, to to shut down those uh, effectively bio warfare U.S. and NATO bio warfare labs. Over 40 of them. Okay, um, this has been these labs have been acknowledged by Victoria Nuland um, into the U.S. Congress in a congressional hearing, but she, of course, claimed they were only biodefense. No, they weren't. And neither, neither was, neither is Battelle Memorial Institute, or for that matter, Dugway Proving Ground, even though Bruce Ivins there didn't do the anthrax attack. So the anthrax attacks were the pretext. We're not only getting the Patriot Act rushed through Congress after it was terrorized, literally, literally the real attack on the U.S. Capitol was the anthrax letter attacks. The yeah. Leahy and Daschle just after and that. Leahy and Daschle were two of the only ones that were pushing for a, an investigation into 9-11 as well. Yes, they, yes, they were. I'm going to have to go inside for a moment because I have to sure. plug my computer in or you lose me. Sure, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Take well. Uh, I want to say, hopefully, Tony. I, I know some of you in the chat have said it's not on in Rockford. I told Tony about it. I don't know why we're not there, but uh, Chris, this is great stuff. I appreciate you coming on. See if I missed anything in the chat. I'm sorry I haven't been able to. There she is. I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. Well, that's great. Well, Barbara, what does it oh, so say? Let though, me about... just uh, uh, okay. make the link there. Hey, go um, ahead. So, so people just need to understand it was because of these inside job anthrax attacks that the government admits and claims itself was an inside job linked to 9-11, okay? Um, it was because of them and the terrorization of Congress 
that Congress then passed a massive, massive uh, funding increase for these what really amount to biowarfare research facilities across mm -hmm. the United States. And it's those, it's those, it's that whole, it's that whole enhanced biowarfare research project um, that actually produced um, the coronavirus out of Wuhan. That was that Ralph Barrick uh, was working on from the University of North Carolina. But what, what do you think that says about America, though, that, uh, that they, they admitted that they did this? They admitted that the anthrax came from a military facility. And uh, if there was any questioning about that, I, the media obviously didn't question it. I mean, the American people certainly didn't. And we talk about those two Democratic senators, but you have even more importantly, you have uh, Paul Wellstone, they, who was they, the most they, vocal, <laughs> you know. But, but, yeah, Paul Wellstone. Well, there, there have been many uh, airplane assassinations, of course. Right. I mean, Paul Wellstone, junior. believe it or not, John Tower. Yeah. They don't just take out Democrats. Oh, they John Tower and uh, John Hines and John Tower died in two subsequent days. Two hell you know what the odds of that of two United States senators dying in well, helicopter crashes? in and out, John. I can't hear you. Oh, okay, because you're freezing up on me. Okay, can you can you hear me okay, Chris? Can't I can hear both of you. Can't hear you yet. Cutting in and out? Yeah, I can hear both of you. It's fine. Okay, I don't know why you can't hear well, me. Well, if you you're, can hear him fine, I can't. But I can now. hear you, Barbara, but uh, I can't. Your your picture is, is your video frozen for you, Chris? It's just cutting in and out. I mean, uh, let, let, me, let me make sure. Hold on. Let me make sure I'm on the right. I have two different okay. uh, accounts. Oh, this is why. Hold on. It's on my end. I can see Barbara's video. Other, yeah. Yeah. Wi-Fi. Hold on. There's one closer to where I am right now. Is mine doing okay? Uh, yeah, you're, okay, you're we fine. Should be all right. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. But I was saying, so what, when you have... Go, go ahead, um, Don. Yeah. So, you know, Paul Wellstone was Don? the most vocal. vocal. Can you hear me now? Now Don's frozen, but... <laughs> now you're frozen. Wow. Why is it... Hmm. Uh, I'm, on, I'm on my good, uh, my good Wi-Fi. I can see I, and hear both of you. I don't know. I, yeah, I can. I can see. And, okay, now, I, now you're okay. I can hear you now. Okay. Uh, well, Paul Wellstone, obviously the most vocal member of the Senate, he was saying basically Dick Cheney's going to get me or is warning him or whatever. And then him and his most of his, his, his wife and at least one kid die in a plane crash. You have uh, Dennis Kucinich, who was uh, also very vocal about it. And two of his siblings die, coincidentally or not, within like a year. And uh, you know he ends up out of Congress. Now he's running RFK Jr.'s <laughs> campaign. Yeah, and I mean, and then you have Cynthia McKinney, our friend, who was probably the most vocal member. You know, critically questioning Donald Rumsfeld, and uh, she's not welcome in Congress anymore. So I mean, there, there's nobody in yeah, Congress. By the, by the way, just for the record, mm -hmm. um, the hearing and Cynthia, when she was in the House of Representatives, she held oh. two. Two hearings on on 9/11. I'll give you a little background of that. Mm -hmm. But um, the the person who helped her the most decide, you know, who what to have and who to invite and all of that was uh, was in fact uh, Mike Rupert, and mm -hmm. her focus on the war games um, was because Mike Rupert um, was using my information and giving it to her, and she was told that it was my it was my research, and so that's how we became. Uh, fast colleagues and friends on 9-11 Truth. We've even roomed together for anniversary events in New York City. Barbara, mm -hmm. I have a, uh, one question. Have you ever corresponded with Webster Tarpley? Oh, I, know I know. Okay. 
Now she, she's frozen. She froze up. Oh, she's yeah. froze up for you too. Okay. I just remember because he put the book out with uh, all the well over a hundred um, drills and things going on that day. So I was wondering if Barbara's work uh, went into that as well. Webster sharply tar froze up. Uh, Phil Fellows is talking about his old friend John Judge. I, I wish I I just started to kind of communicate oh, yeah. with John Judge when he had so many people who compared me to him and. and one of them was uh, Cynthia McKinney when she when she wrote uh, a blurb for Hidden History. I think I don't know if she mentioned it in there or she mentioned it to me, but she said I, she reminded me that I reminded her of John Judge and my way I I viewed things. Uh, sorry about that. You were frozen up for a minute, Barbara. Yeah, yeah. Um, who reminded you of John Judge? I mean, who said? That? Uh, Cynthia McKinney said that that I that I reminded not not physically, but she said the way I looked at things that she that my work reminded her of. Well, me, I knew I knew him. and worked directly with John Judge. He, believe it or not, I live. You in know Florida. all these people, yeah. Well, I know everybody. <laughs> did you ever, did you ever know, I know them? Did you um, ever know William Rodriguez or April? Well, hold on, hold on, hold okay, on. Let me talk yeah, yeah. about John Judge yeah. for a moment. Yeah. Um, so John Judge, believe it or not, um, lived and or at least worked with Mae Russell, who oh, was a yes. JFK a legend. Yeah, sure, sure. When I worked in her home, I was her. I, I worked with her in her you home. Mae Russell too. John Judge yeah. was right here in Carmel Valley at the time, and wow. she would hold uh, lunch, uh, dinners, potlucks at her home on Friday mm -hmm. nights. And John Judge was at those. Um, and John Judge um, actually. <laughs> actually uh illegally came in and took all of her books and records after she died and they had to be uh they had to be returned i did not know that. well she did some great work so so listening to her stuff is is fantastic john barber my friend do you, know, way, do you know john do you know john barber i'm uh, let me just say all of may brussels um 850 or so radio shows from right here in yeah. the Monterey Pins of California. They're all on the website, May Brussel, that's M-A-E, B-R-U-S-S-E-L-L.com, maybrussel.com, and the audio files and the transcripts and her articles, especially on the JFK assassination and the Nazi connection. Yes, right, right. Are right. all on, big time Nazi connection, are all on May Russell, M-A-E-B-R-U-S-S-E-L-L dot com. And she goes into the John Lennon assassination oh, yeah. quite a bit too. Well, she, she, Manson case, sure. She was there. She was outside the uh, hotel shortly after. Yeah. Yeah, wow. very interesting. That, that, uh, I, uh, Chris Buckin says, I'm very proud of my friendship with John Barber. Yes, I am. I love John Barber. Do you know John Barber? Have you met him? No, I, who is this? No. Well, yeah, he's was only the host of the number one show on television back in the day, Real People. Yeah. And uh, this guy, was he was Frank Sinatra's writer for six years. So he he combines show business and the JFK assassination, two of oh. my favorite. And he worked, he was the first person to interview Jim Garrison. Yeah. After after the uh, Clay Shaw trial, and he produced uh, the Garrison tapes, which was kind of a uh, corresponding piece with Oliver Stone's JFK. Mm -hmm. And then he did a great job. He was here in Washington, D.C. I got to meet him a few years ago at the National Press Club, where he did a great uh, documentary. If you haven't seen it, you should. Uh, it's the American media and the second assassination of John F. Kennedy. Oh. Wonderful. So he's he's just a great guy. But any and I, I, why did I bring him up, Chris? Why, why did I even mention him? I mentioned him. Oh, well, there's there's the May, May May oh, yeah, because yeah, he talks about May Brussel all the time, and uh, yeah. she's she was just she doesn't one. get the credit that she's due, and he brings. Well, up. I do. I've I've uh, been invited um, 
I've been invited at least four years in a row, maybe five now, to give uh, invited presentations at the uh, JFK, one of the two or three simultaneous, horrible, uh, JFK mm. conferences in Dallas for the anniversaries of the assassination. I, I did not know you were that you were that interested, in the, that you were that involved in the JFK research. And you know all these people. That's fantastic. Yes, That's, I, uh, I do. And I'm going to be uh, co-producing two events uh, in Dallas this year. Um, I can't talk about them now, but I will get back to you when they're firmed up. But they will be historic. They will be truly historic. Um, they will be explosively historic. Uh, and they will be on the 20th and 21st of November in Dallas. Wow. Well, look look for my new book coming out next month, just before the 60th anniversary, Pimp the Bimbo. No, Pipe the Bimbo in Red. Dean Andrews. like Pimp the Bimbo. Pipe the Bimbo in Red, Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the Conspiracy to Kill JFK. Uh, writ, co-written with my friend William Law is the top expert on the autopsy evidence. Doesn't get the credit he deserves. But it, it's gonna. It was triggered by my longtime friendship with Dean Andrews III, who was my brother's best friend. He was, and uh, he was a family friend. And his father was the New Orleans beatnik lawyer, played by John Candy and Jeff. So we have lots of re revelations about that, and lots. I, lots by of the way, I personally knew Fletcher Prouty. Oh wow! Yeah, who was great hero of mine? Who is Mr. X? Yes, she was. The yeah. character Mr. X uh, uh, was based upon Fletcher Prouty in yes. all of his films. So you movies. must know Leno Sanic then. Who? Do you know Leno, do you know Leno, Leno Sanic? Sanic. He, uh, I'm sorry, the, say it slowly. Leno Sanic, uh, the gentleman no. that pr preserved okay. uh, Mr. Prouty's work afterwards. No, I don't know. Oh, wow. What, yeah, what, what, is there a, a website of Prouty's work? He does, yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, Prouty.org. Oh, still, still but Len, Len does uh, radio. Was it radio? Black What's, Op it? Radio. Black Op Radio. Oh, I've been God. on it a couple times. I should know. And he, he Black does. Op or Black Ops? Black Op. Op. op uh, singular. Black Op Radio. And yeah. uh, he's he had uh, he yeah he's got the all of uh, Prouty's records. You know, and you know Prouty right now in the JFK research community, there's been an effort. I call these people neocons that are they're not neo believers in conspiracy, but they dominate the research community. That's why they hate me too. But one of many reasons, but uh, they, for some reason, they've been after Prouty lately. What do you mean a, after? What are they saying? They are trying to destroy his reputation. They do this. They do this to so many people. But what are and, they saying? What What is well, the claim? Well, when he when he testified to the ARRB, the Assassination Records and Review Board, he uh, apparently he told Len and some other people afterwards that he was uh, he was just kind of toying with them and joking with them, but. They take it literally that he was almost like repudiating everything he'd said when he didn't do that. But uh, well, they did that to William Rodriguez too with the Let's Roll farm. Yeah, you know uh, what happened to Barbara? Oh, there she is. Okay, <laughs> thought, I was wondering if Barbara ever corresponded with April Gallup and William Rodriguez. Yeah, April, April Gallup and William to Barbara. I think she's frozen. Again. She's frozen up again now. Yeah, I don't think it's my connection. I think I think when she went inside, her connection is not as good for some reason, because yeah. we didn't have any issues when she was outside. Yeah. Yeah, nothing. Barbara, I hope they haven't come after you. <laughs> May Russell, though. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea she had this uh, JFK assassination uh, background. You know, she knew John Judge, and obviously it was Cynthia McKinney. Cynthia McKinney is still the only member of Congress. She actually went to these JFK conferences. Oh, yeah. Nobody else has <laughs> ever done that. I mean, she was that interested in it. Yeah. 
It reminds me of Tulsi Gabbard uh, with JFK uh, research book. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, uh-oh. Now we lost her completely. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I hope she comes. Oh, there she is. Oh, here we go. There she is. Yeah, there, yeah. I. It, it, okay. It, I, ha I have two Wi-Fi accounts and it. Okay. You, you're, you, it was running really smooth outside. And so when you came inside, it seemed to. Uh, to well, uh, you know, I, uh, that's, it's not the NSA, by the way. I just learned that I had forgotten to plug it in. Well, we thought somebody we, we, we <laughs> prefer the, cons the NSA, though. That's we, can, we prefer conspiratorial explanations on this uh, show. No, exactly. What I, <laughs> I didn't hear, what is their claim about Fletcher Prouty? No, Fletcher Prouty, they 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 claim his ARRB testimony, Assassination Records Review Board, that in that he seemed to backtrack on things he said. And his explanation later was that he was they were they were screwing with him. He knew they didn't want the truth, and so he I think it was unwise of him, but if you read his testimony, it, it's it's. I don't know why he did it, but well, I don't think it he, just. What did he say? He kind of backed off. He backed off on a lot of the things he'd said in the past, and it made no sense. And of course, he didn't really do that, but for some reason, he told them that because he knew they weren't out for the truth. I don't know. I think it was an unwise decision. Well, give me and, one uh, example of a backtrack in his testimony. Oh God, I don't. I'm trying to remember now. You know, because I, I didn't. I didn't. I just know what they were trying to do. But I, um, I think. Well, I, I want to. I, I want to. I want to give you a piece of important information. Please do. Um, about Fletcher Prouty from my personal personal experience. Okay, um, which which might be related to this very seriously. I I didn't know that he had backtracked to the ARB. I didn't know that. Um, I, I have to look into that. I have to look, I have to know what he had originally said and what he said through the hearing. Okay. Right. And make up my own mind, but I'm going to tell you what happened with me personally. Mm -hmm. And it's related to October surprise. Mm -hmm. So when, when Ed Meese, as I mentioned earlier in the first hour of the show, when um, Reagan's attorney general, Ed Meese, then attorney general, second Reagan Bush senior term administration. When Ed Meese went, came out publicly in November of 1986 and claimed that, oh, you know, this Iran-Contra thing, we're going to come clean about it. It was just, you know, a few hundred million dollars of arms. And, and yeah, we, the, the prophets, the Israelis were the middleman and the prophets went to, you know, to the Contras. Okay, that was a cover story. There, I mean, there was really bad stuff going on with arms and drugs with the Contras, but the whole Iran side was a cover story to cover up the October surprise. Five billion dollars worth of arms treasonous hostage delay deal in October 1980 by the Reagan Bush senior campaign. Okay, so, but before I published my book, right after that happened, right after that happened, I knew I had to seriously do a book. And so for about six months, and of course, this was during the Iran-Contra hearings because they happened in uh, early to mid uh, uh, twenty um, nineteen. What was it? Nineteen eighty-seven. Okay. So I was working with Mae Russell at the time, and if you can imagine working with Mae Russell, one of the world's foremost JFK researchers, in her home. Um, while we were watching the Iran-Contra hearings together and covering all the news, that was quite an experience of itself. But when I wasn't working with May at her home, which is right here where I live in Carmel Valley, California, also, um, 
then I was working on my own research for my future book, October Surprise. And when I, when you do a book, a, a serious history book, uh, you have to have a chronology. And so I had an annotated, detailed reference chronology. And it had gotten to 76 pages, single space, when I decided, well, I better have um, some outside eyes on this. Who can I trust? And my, my White House godmother, if you will, when I was in the White House for the Reagan-Bush first term uh, in the Justice Department was Sarah McClendon, who was the senior White House correspondent. She was a color my political godmother. I was so close to her. I, when, she, when I'd be at her home in uh, the suburbs of, of Washington, D.C., she would have me just sleep in her bed because she didn't have another one instead of on the couch while she was working into the wee hours of the morning. I mean, I was like her daughter. She was my political godmother. So I called up Sarah and I said, Sarah, I'm going to send you. I'm working on a book on the October surprise. She knew what it was, but she didn't have the details. It was in my timeline, annotated timeline. And so she said, well, send it to me. So I printed out a copy and put it in the mail. About two weeks later, now I'm in California. She's in Washington, D.C. She's still the senior White House correspondent. So I get a call from Sarah. And Sarah is very agitated. She says, Barbara, you have to come to Washington, D.C., and you have to come now. This is all about Flesher Prouty. I'm going to get there. Hmm. And uh, she said, you have to come to D.C., and you have to come now. I said, well, Sarah, I don't have the money. What, what are you talking about? I have this, you know, P-dunk job here, you know, with a bread and breakfast. I, I don't have the funds. And she said, well, find them. You know, she was <laughs> she was very much your... Your, oh, she was a she was a classic on those uh, uh you know uh, White House press White conferences. House press conference. Oh, she was fun. Row, right. Yeah, she would shake her finger at presidents of the United States. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. She was she when I met her in the first Reagan Bush senior term, she had already been there through eight or nine straight presidencies. Okay. She was the senior White House correspondent, even more so than Helen Thomas by a few years. So anyway, so she called me up and she says that she'd received my my Timeline, obviously, but she didn't mention it. She said, you've got to come to D.C. and you've got to come immediately. And I said, well, I don't have the money. She said, we'll find it. You have to come. And I said, well, why? And she said, well, there's someone who says he must meet you. And I said, well, who? And she said, I can't tell you. I said, why can't you tell me? She said, he won't let me. So I found the money. And that man was Donald Sutherland, right? No, that was Right, <laughs> Okay, so so anyway, the bottom line is I end up getting the money together from friends and uh, loans, and I fly back to Washington, D.C. She picks me up. She could still drive. She was in her late 70s, early 80s. Um, and she picked me up at the airport. We went back to her place. And um, she said, okay, well, tomorrow you're having lunch with this person who insists upon meeting you. And I said, well, now you can, I'm here. You can tell me who it is. He says, no, no. He doesn't want you to know who it is until you actually sit down uh, in front of him. And, you know, come on, Sarah, really? But she wouldn't tell me. She kept his word. So the next, the next, mor the next late morning, we, we drive to the National Press Club where there is an entire to this day dining room named after Sarah McClendon. Mm -hmm. And so she, we went up to the press club, 10th floor, whatever, 11th, and um, there was a lobby there outside the, uh, the, the dining area. And I assumed that she was going in with me. 
And she said, no, 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 no. He he's insists upon meeting you one-on-one. -on -one. And she said, it's in my Sarah McClendon dining room. And um, there, there are very uh, explicit instructions to the waitstaff that no one else shall enter except for you. And he's waiting for you. So she says, just walk in and it'll be on the long, the long, narrow part before you go into the actual little dining area. And he will be on the last table on the left facing you as you turn the corner. And so I left her in the lobby, a senior White House correspondent. And I did that. And as I turned the corner to this long, narrow part, um, sure enough, there was a man in full Air Force dress whites with all of his ribbons. He didn't have his hat on. Uh, it was on the table beside him. But he was in full dress uniform. And I did not, had no idea who it was. I had no idea. Um, and as I turned the corner and started walking towards him, he stood up in very military bearing and he didn't salute or anything, <laughs> but he said, you must be Barbara as I approached him. And I said, yes, he said, and he was, it was almost like an, a, a pleasant interrogation. He said, you're Barbara Honecker, right? And I said, yes. And then he pulled the chair out. And I sat down and he was all business. The first thing he said was, I am Colonel retired Air Force Colonel Fletcher Prouty. Well, forgive me, but I had no idea who that was. Mm -hmm. I just knew I was in the presence of a very important person. Uh, the way that it had all happened with Sarah McClendon, the senior White House correspondent, mm -hmm. who turns out to have been a longtime close colleague and friend of Fletcher Prouty's. Okay, so I sit down. He does the chair for me. He goes around. He doesn't say anything else, except takes out a very official-looking black leather briefcase opens it up, takes out the manila envelope, takes some papers out of it, turns them upside down and passes them across the table to me. And he says, take a look at that, would you? And I turned it over and I said, oh, this is my October surprise timeline that I sent to Sarah. <clears throat> and he said, yes, she made a copy for me and sent it to me. And I told her I had to meet you immediately. And then it was a friendly interrogation. I mean, he's obviously was well-versed in intelligence interrogation. And he looked me straight in the eyes, but we were only two and a half feet across, a very small table for two uh, against the far wall. And he looked me straight in the eyes and he kind of tapped on it in front of me on the paper and uh, on my timeline. And he said, did you do this timeline? And I looked him straight in the eyes. I said, yes, it's my timeline. And he said, did you do all the research for the timeline? I said, yeah. He said, no one else helped you at all. And I said, no. And then he repeated it and had me say it a couple of times more, carefully looking in my face and in my eyes. And then when he was satisfied, you could tell there was a moment where, okay. And he said, may I keep it? May I have it back? And I said, of course. And he said, what is this for? And I said, well, I'm doing the book. And as he took it back, he said, well, congratulations. He said, you have figured out the truth. And he said, I look forward to your book. And then he put it back without saying anything else. He put it back in the, in the little envelope, clasped the envelope, put it back in his briefcase, put the briefcase down. And then here's the clincher. <laughs> here's the clincher which may or may not be related 
to the critique of him that you just told me about. He clasped his hands on the table and looked me straight in the eye. And he said, for someone of your, this is as verbatim as I can remember it, for someone of your obvious uh, intelligence and research talents, the people who run the world, this is an exact quote, the people who run the world go to Haleybury Academy in the UK. And if you would ever like to join us, really, let you know. Now, I did a little research on Haleybury Academy. The Haleybury Academy, just Google it. Mm -hmm. The Haleybury Academy is what is left of the uh, academy that trained the British Empire's overseas governors and uh, in India and the you know all of the Commonwealth nations, Canada, New Zealand, etc. Okay, so I was being recruited for British intelligence by Fletcher Prouty. Wow. Now after he said that to me, I'm not a joiner. Okay. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what Haleybury Academy was at the time. I did that research after the fact, of course, and I didn't ask him anything more. Um, you know, in a situation like that with a VIP, you you follow your intuition, and something just told me, and now we're just going to have a pleasant lunch and talk about our mutual friend, Sarah McClendon, and that's what happened. And then we went out to the lobby after our pleasant lunch, talking about Sarah and what I was going to do with the book and nothing at all again <laughs> about being recruited for the British. What that showed me is that whoever Fletcher Prouty really was, he was his real loyalty was to British intelligence, to the British mm. system, uh, which is a monarchy. And that at least from his point of view, uh, that the United States is still one of Britain's colonies like Canada. Wow. Okay. Now, well, what, what do you think? Sean Stone. Let me just finish. Yeah. There's a book by, I've done uh, radio programs with Sean Stone. Yes. Who has written a book basically saying this. I really? Sean, I, wait, Sean is a friend. I met him in DC. We had lunch together. He's been on my show. I've been on his show. Yeah. Wow. He, he alluded to this. Well, it's in his book. I can't remember the title yeah. at the moment, but just look up, go to Amazon. Yeah, yeah, Sean, yeah. S.E.A.N. Stone, Oliver Stone's son. Uh, has its own radio show or on te you know podcast TV show. Yeah, he used to be on RT. Yeah, 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 right. And um, his, his book is about the British Empire and how basically um, we didn't really win the Revolutionary War. Well, it sounds like Lyndon LaRouche too. Lyndon LaRouche basically thinks everything Absolutely. was run out of England. That, that was his whole thing, wasn't it? I mean, the, it still the is. British, yeah, British Crown runs everything. Yeah, it wow. Still is. Yeah, that's well. That's that's un so. What do you think from that story? Uh, well, first of all, did 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 uh, did George H. W. Bush really say the quote attributed to him to Sarah McClendon about it? They, if the people knew what we were doing, they'd chase us down the streets or something like that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, he did. Yeah, and she yeah. immediately called me up. He told so me he, he said that to her in the White House press room. So he said in front of others, and it was about the October surprise. Wow. He said confidence, right? Well, what? So, what, what? Why do you think Sarah McClendon 
who, again, I have a favorable opinion of. She was one of the last, uh, you know, maybe, ha- you know, good mainstream journalists that had some kind of investigative uh, zeal and about courage. her. And courage. Yeah. But what what do you think? Why do you think she, it, do you think she was aware of Prouty's connections or why do you? No, no, she, no, she wasn't. Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, what's What's amazing is we didn't talk about it. After we went out, after that lunch, we went out to the lobby. Sarah was still sitting there waiting for me and him. And he comes out with his cover on. That's what they call their cap. Mm-hmm. And um, Air Force cover. And uh, the two of us came out. He escorted me out. And she was still sitting there. She stood up. And there were some pleasantries uh, exchanged. And then Fletcher Prouty left. We watched him leave. And then Sarah, as I recall, Sarah wanted to have something to eat. She hadn't had lunch. Hmm. So, but there was no discussion at all. Somehow she knew not to ask me. I was going to say, she, did, she didn't not. ask you what he wanted? I would think no. that would be the first thing she'd say. No, she didn't. Hmm. Maybe he much. asked her not to. I mean, it was very strange. Yeah, that is. I don't know what to, to think. Is there something like that? Because, that, uh, you know, but he's, I've, done, he's, I've done a sworn jurid affidavit about this, by the way. It's a fact. He's been a hero of mine for a long time. I I, I don't know. Uh, you well, know, he's still he's still a hero of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Even if that, you well, need that's, to see the whole picture of the man. Well, sure. I mean, that's uh, you, you have so many connections. I had no idea that you were. I, I was, you know, thinking October surprise and 9-11. And uh, but you well, so I used, to, I used to hold meetings with Edward Teller at the Hoover Institution. Yeah. <laughs> So you have lots of, and, and you're, you're basically, I, I like this because, you know, almost everybody, I'm in a far right wing world most of the time, because that's what the entire conspiracy world is dominated by that now. I mean, that's what, that's what's yeah, there. It's really interesting. Most of the, most of the shows that I'm asked to be on, they assume because I'm telling the truth that I'm a right winger. I'm yes. Not. Yeah. I, I, I'm, that's what, I'm a libertarian. Yeah, that's what I would have thought because there's no, you know, outside of Jimmy Dore, there's nobody that has a big audience that's on the left at all. My friend, Naomi Wolf is a friend of mine. She doesn't have a show, but she, you know, is a, a truth teller too. But I wouldn't, there's, I wouldn't say I'm on the left. I'm an independent. Yeah. No yeah, matter we, what the, well, no matter what the issue is, I do my own research and I take a position. And quite frankly, um, my personal belief is that the two parties, Divide up evil between them. Yes. And, you know, the if you remember the uh, uh, Ronald Reagan loved jelly beans, especially the black one. <laughs> I do <Right>? remember that. <laughs> when Jimmy Carter was associated with peanuts, he was a peanut farmer. Oh, yes. And, loved- you know, the Ronald Reagan Republican jelly bean fits exactly inside our Democratic Jimmy Carter peanut show. <laughs> yeah, there's one. I, I hesitate to ask this, but so, so I'm guessing you never felt, did you not fall for Trump at all? No, no, I, okay. I consider Trump extremely dangerous. But so you didn't, even initially, you didn't for his initial never. rhetoric? And, never. never. Okay. I guess it's, uh, but I am, I, I am excited about RFK Jr. Yeah, I was wondering to see. So what do you, that, I think he's great, obviously, too, but uh, I'm very troubled about his marks on Israel. Yeah, I understand, but yeah. you need to you need to understand something. You don't get elected unless you say something. All right, right. Yeah. There's real much control over Congress and the media. So, you know, he's smart. He just wants to get in the position. I trust him once he's there. Do you think he has a chance? 
I do. Well, you heard that's uh, that would be. I mean, you know, by it's is where she would get Secret Service protection. Uh, yeah, he he's denied Secret Service. Yes, he was. I'm talking about. Yeah, that was kind of blatant, wasn't it? Jeez, now you don't, yeah. you don't need Secret Service readers. The well, candidate. He has to, I believe he has to be. Um, I believe he has to be actually the nominee before, by law, he gets Secret Service protection. But even then, I'm not sure I would want it. I mean, after all, the Secret Service <laughs> was absolutely complicit in the JFK assassination. Right. Yeah, I don't know how much. It, well, and you know that people think about these assassinations, but really, they it they seem to have gone away from that 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 uh, mode of doing things because uh, Reagan's attempt was the last one in this country, and that's over 40 years ago. By the way, I was there for that. You're, okay. Did you tell us about that? Did you, <laughs> can I ask you this? Did you see another uh, shooter? Yes, on the roof. On the you roof. So you know that, but uh, Judy was yeah, Judy Whitter reported that. The yeah. claim is, of course, is that he was basically a Secret Service guard. That's what they said. Yes. Yeah. Well, I will on the Reagan thing. You, you will be my book that's coming out next spring. It's going to be published next spring. The American Memory Hole. Uh, we're going to have something shocking about. Uh, Hinkley and Jody Foster. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, it's just, wait for that. You would not believe October it. Surprise. In the, yeah. My book October Surprise at the end. Um, I go into, of course, um, the fact that uh, Hinkley's brother uh, was, uh, yes. was pre-planned to have a celebration dinner right. uh, with because Reagan was supposed to have died. Yeah. It was right. a true miracle that Reagan did not die. By the way, and I was I was there for that miracle. Do you now, think did you hear about uh, George H. W. Bush um, on uh, pacing back and forth like during that time, waiting to hear back? Uh, well, he was Obama. on he was on Air Force Two. That's what he I mean. Was in like, the air, and it turned back around. Okay, but because I had heard before that staff members had noticed uh, him kind of be just acting kind of erratic while he was waiting for the news. About well, you stuff. you can expect that whether he was complete. Oh yeah, or not. I want you to just and answer he was, this. He was the clear beneficiary. Oh, answer, yeah. Can you answer that question from Cat real quick uh, before we go away from Prouty? Uh, let's see, and then uh, in seven minutes, after, it'll be two hours. I'd appreciate. Oh yeah, we're we're that's it's only two hours show. What okay. what year was it you mentioned Fletcher Prouty? Cat Goy wants to know. Um, well, that would have been right. That would have been um, summer of eighty seven. Okay. Well, and you're right. We only have seven minutes left. So I want to, what do you want to talk about? Minute, We've gone all was, over the place. Hold, I wanna, hold on. There was, there was a, you took it off the screen. There was a question. That was, uh, that was, she wanted to know what year you met Fletcher Prouty. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, it could be a little bit different than that. I might have to rethink, but I mean, it was, it was right after I'd finished my timeline. Okay, but I, in the time we have left, I want you to because we've been all over the place talking about all kinds of things. What What it's do you want? It's been a great show. I love it. Well, I we love it too, and you've been a great guest, and uh, the audience loves you. But I just want what What do you want to with the, the few minutes we have left? Uh, do you want to talk about what you're doing next, or what do you think is important now? Where Where do you Where do you go? Because we COVID basically stripped us of what civil liberties we had left. Do you Do you see a second lockdown coming? Do you think they're going to do this? Uh, you know, COVID part two. In the of, fall? Course, of course, they're going to try. Do you think yeah, people... let, let me let me tell you what I believe. This is a very informed opinion, mm -hmm. but it is my opinion. What I think the whole coronavirus thing was, okay? Mm -hmm. I think that it was, and especially the rollout of the vaccines um, worldwide. Okay. I think it was a, a massive, illegal, 
a massive illegal under the Nuremberg Codes and international law and U.S. law and FDA policy that it was a massive illegal non-consent a huge so-called public health experiment because some of those a percentage of the vaccines were placebos yes and they had to lie the whole pcr test absurdity and all of that mm -hmm. they had to lie to maximize the number of unwitting, uninformed guinea pig subjects. These are the people who took the vaccine to get the best data. They needed millions of data points. And then why would they do that? In my very informed opinion, this is my opinion. I've never heard anyone else say it, although I've said it on some other shows. Um, in my opinion, what's behind all of this, all of it, is that the United States government for a very long time and the five eyes and Israel, you know, basically UK, there we go, the British and especially the Canadians, the Australians, New Zealand, the United States, five eyes plus one, the one being Israel and to a lesser extent, NATO countries, EU countries. But that the so-called West has been preparing for a biological war for a very long time. And if you're going to win a war against uh, an alleged enemy that has massively more population than you do, i.e. China, then you are going to have to initiate that war and you are going to have to have the antidote to whatever pandemic pathogen you use. So, you know, in war, it, um, for instance, if, uh, if, if you're, uh, let's say you're the Nazis and you want to uh, drop missiles or bombs, uh, send missiles or drop bombs on, on London, what you do is you test their defenses. But if you want to initiate such a biological war, a bio-war, you need to do exactly what they did to find out, to test how many members of the public are going to fall for this. What percentage of the population are going to die if it blows back and you initiate a bio-war? I mean, we're not the only country. Russia does it. China does it. I'm sure India does it. I'm sure that the EU countries, and I know Britain does it big time, porting down. So um, the professor... Uh, of international law, Professor Francis Boyle. Yes. Um, he, he spoke at our Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry um, anniversary event just this past Sunday. And I want you to put the link to that. Well, I'll, you, you can just go to our Lawyers Committee website, lcfor911.org, and scroll down a little bit and click on the video screen with the arrow in the middle and start at about 58 minutes and 30 you, ha you have that link in the email you sent me with your bio, didn't you? Uh, yes, I do. But it's okay. easier to just go to lcfor911.org right, right, and click you. on the video screen and watch it and go to the 58 minute 30 second mark. 
and watch my presentation on the anthrax attacks. Everything that I'm telling you is in there. And especially after you've seen mine, then you need to watch Professor Francis Boyles, one of the world's biowarfare and biochemical experts. And he comes immediately after, and our two presentations are related, and you will see how dangerous and urgent this is. No, oh, absolutely. I, ca I call it the greatest psyop in the history of the world. That's what, and this is a worldwide thing. The entire world. <laughs> there wasn't. Well, I mean, we're just preparing <clears throat> for the time that there will be a bio war. Well, would, weren't you amazed as I was that that there wasn't a, like a single small nation? No one. Everybody bought this. I mean, they shut down the world like a week, a couple of days, really. <clears throat> and they didn't need a single troop. They didn't need a single shot being fired. Everybody obeyed. Nobody questioned it. And no, no, everybody didn't obey. I didn't. Well, I mean, the average, a lot of the average people didn't, but nobody in any position of authority. I oh, mean, positions well, of authority. No. I mean, a lot of Africa, African leaders uh, ended up dying. And well, yeah, they had, when the vaccine rollout came, yeah, then you started seeing the deaths of the African leaders and you know <clears throat> things like that. But yeah, just and it's crazy. And then President Trump got it. You know, I think you've you've noticed that President Trump actually got a lot sicker than uh, that he and the White House led on. And he was very, very upset when that came out recently. Um, no, it's, it's, it's a serious pathogen, but it wasn't nearly as gain-of-function weaponized as it could have been. Next time, it'll be more. And Bill Gates is saying next time, it's going to be a lot more contagious and a lot more infectious. No, How Gates, did you know? Because they do it. Yeah, Bill, Bill Gates came out with some line the other day. Was that He said, you, you think you have a choice and you, you don't have a choice. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> well, we know he's we don't. Fool. He's a fool because he's a human being. And it will blow back on him. Oh, he's a eugenicist. That's the, I think that's what this whole thing is. These people are eugenicists. They've been dreaming about uh, culling the herd for a long time. And this appears to be what's happening, right? Look, look, look people, I know it's four o'clock, but I just wasn't going to end by reminding you that Adolf Hitler modeled what he did on the United States government's uh, eugenics program. Sure. Woodrow Wilson, first, first uh, governor of New Jersey, passed the first forced sterilization law. You know, that's you know, this, these people have been talking about this forever. And I don't think it's an accident that Georgia Guidestones, which talked about it, blew up it during blown this. Up. I love it. I know. And just they, the and, World Trade Center. And, and, and they yeah. never they never even attempted to investigate who does like, don't you have video or something? The video. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean they, they didn't even care. It's just, well, it's there and now it's not, you know, symbolic or whatever. <laughs> but well, I, Barbara, this has been a really pleasure. Uh Really appreciate it. Uh, anything, what what else do you want to close with? Anything, again, get out your links or what do you want to promote or any parting thoughts on your part? Well, just please put all of the links that I sent you for the backgrounder in. Yes. And okay. uh, be sure and be sure and put at the very top uh, the Lawyers Committee website, which is okay. lcfor911.org, um, and ask people to watch our, um, and, and to, if they would, if I if I can say, to donate to the Lawyers Committee. We yes. desperately need financial help. We're volunteers, and we're the tip of the spear for 9-11 Truth and the legal system in the world. Well, you're doing great work, and uh, we really appreciate it. You've been doing it a long time, and I, I, I thank you very much for coming on. Chris Grace, thanks for coming on and joining. He's, nice he's to the, meet you, Chris. He's, nice to meet a, you too. he's the crack expert. He knows this minutia like uh, no one By else. By the way, be sure, Chris, um, and send me your email to my yeah. email. Absolutely. Could you write down my email? I hope. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure he gets it. But uh, yeah, and I'll just I'll just close by if anybody wants to follow up with other questions from the show, 
uh, you can email me at b-s-h-o-n-e-g-g at gmail.com, b-s-h-o-n-e-g-g at gmail.com, but be sure and put in the subject line only follow up to Don Jeffrey's show. Otherwise, I will not see your email. Wonderful. I appreciate it, Barbara. Thanks to everybody in the chat room. Rockfin, I don't know if we, I, the, Tony said we got over there, so I'm sorry I, I missed you guys. I can't access the Rockfin chat anymore. So people on YouTube appreciate it. Lots of lots of great feedback there. They really enjoyed it. Thanks, Barbara. everybody. Great questions, actually. Very informed. Well, it's wonderful. Thank, thank you, Barbara. I'll close out the show. I appreciate it. For Barbara Honiger, thanks for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening to I Protest. We'll talk to you at the same time next week. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Okay.